Well, Psalm number 45. We're moving through them, aren't we? Slowly but surely. One of the misperceptions that people have about the book of Psalms is that there's some redundancy in there, seeming sameness, and there is some themes and some concepts that continue to appear throughout various psalms. There are certain categories of psalms and there are certain sections of them. And while they may share a similar message and a similar structure and form, maybe they share a similar author or authors in the plural, uh, what's so powerful about the Psalms is how each one of them speak very specifically to the human experience this side of eternity. And by way of introduction, I normally don't have conversations or introductions or in make comments like I'm about to make, frankly, because sometimes there's information out there that really is not very useful to just regular church people. But uh, here it goes. When I was in seminary and I had the privilege of studying the Hebrew language, I had a seminary professor his name was Dennis McGarry, Dr. Dennis McGarry, and I believe that he still is a Hebrew teacher there at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And one of the things that he would constantly drive home during Hebrew class was he would say over and over again, be careful with reading too much of the New Testament back into the Old Testament. And he would warn his students about, you know, seeing Jesus under every rock and pebble in the book of Psalms or in the Old Testament and reading Jesus back into all these passages. And his reasoning was that you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that because there's enough already in the Psalms themselves to really light up and to really reveal the truth of the Psalms to the Bible student and to the church member. We don't need to sort of embellish them too awful much. We don't need to add anything to them. We just need to give them as they are. And so that stuck with me. He said he gave many reasons why we should be cautious of reading too much of the New Testament back into the Old Testament. But one of the reasons that he gave that stuck out so clearly to me was that if you just simply give what is there in the passage of Scripture, there's enough, there's more than enough to keep everyone uh, attuned to the truth of God in the Old Testament. And so I've tried in my ministry to sort of adopt that principle, and maybe sometimes as people have heard other discussions on the Psalms, uh, there are a lot of Bible teachers that like to sort of uh, go wide open and they see Jesus, they see Psalms that are messianic that are maybe not messianic, uh, and they like to allegorize and spiritualize the text, and I try not to do that too awfully much. But Psalm 45 is one of those Psalms where it doesn't really matter how you cut it, um, the Christological interpretation is so obvious 
in Psalm 45. What I mean is, is that anybody that knows anything about the Bible will immediately begin to identify that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord and Savior, the Son of God, is so clearly presented to us in the 45th Psalm that even the most stuffy Hebrew exegetes uh, acknowledge that this psalm is messianic in its nature. I'm going to step out on a limb and say that pound for pound, all things considered, uh, my opinion is, is that Psalm 45 is the most messianic psalm that we have looked at in our study of the 45 psalms. All of the psalms can have a Christ-centered sort of interpretive framework. What I mean is, is that all of the psalms, in one way or another, for New Covenant believers in local churches like ours, in contemporary culture, all of the psalms can have a certain Christ principle in them. And what I mean is that all of the psalms point to God. And if all the Psalms point to God in the New Testament, the only way that Gentiles and Hebrews, by the way, can come to God is through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so we'll say that all of the Psalms are God-centered. And if all of the Psalms are God-centered because the believer is centered in Christ, then all of the Psalms are also Christ-centered. But again, beware of seeing too many connections uh, in the Old Testament to the New Testament. One of the things that Dr. Carson used to go out of his way to say is that the best thing you can do is look for when the New Testament writers allude to or quote from the Old Testament. And when the New Testament writers very clearly quote from the Old Testament, then you have the sort of, you have a little bit of a license then to open that passage up in a sort of New Testament way. Now, somebody says that is all useless information to me. Well, I felt like I needed to mention that because of what you're about to see. You're about to see something very fascinating and very profound. I want you to notice with me Psalm number 45 and really the verses that are sort of the focal point for our Christ-centered messianic interpretation are verses number 6 and 7. I want you to look at this. The psalmist said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you'll say, Boy, I've heard that somewhere else before, and you would be absolutely correct. This passage is quoted verbatim, nearly verbatim, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Now, we're going to talk about this by way of introduction this morning and what's the significance of this. I want you to notice the really the crux, the catchphrase, the foundation of this great 45th Psalm is found in that 7th verse where he said, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What does this mean? 
I mean, here you have God talking to God. Did you catch that in the passage? Therefore, God, your God. Well, which is it? God standing in the mirror, look at him himself. You know, I don't know. Uh, no, that's not how this is working. Let me explain the historical context of this passage and what that means telegraphing down into the New Testament. You remember in Psalms chapter 2, David was viewed as the physical representative as a son of God on the earth. So in other words, for the Jewish people, and really not just for the Jewish people, but for all the ancient peoples that made up the Canaanish world, the Middle Eastern world, the Near Eastern world, and the ancient world, these people viewed their king as being a physical representative of their God. So, for example, the Canaanites would have viewed their king or their uh, chieftain uh, to be the physical representative of Chemosh or of the others, perhaps uh, the, the Philistines, Dagon, or one, whoever their God was at the time. And so the Jewish people adopted a sort of similar view, except for David was viewed to have been a son of Yahweh, a son of God. So in the most strict literal interpretation of the 45th Psalm, uh, the bride or the psalmist is writing about the king of Israel uh, being united to his bride and that the king of Israel is sort of an earthly representative of God who is in the heavenly realm. So God who is in the heavenly realm has his earthly son, a representative who is the king that represents him in the physical realm and that leads his people on into the will of God. Now on the surface... This psalm focuses our heart and mind upon all the splendor of the royal wedding. The royal wedding. Evoking all the sights and sounds, emotions associated with a tremendous occasion whereby the king of Israel would be united in holy matrimony with his bride. So on the surface... The literal historical interpretation of Psalm 45 is that it was written to commemorate the Jewish king taking to himself a bride. And it would have been used by Jewish couples, newlywed couples, as they're in the Jewish wedding process, which is far different, by the way, than our wedding process. I don't have time to go into that this morning. But it would have been used for Jewish people under the Old Covenant, as you would have had a Jewish husband and a Jewish wife who were going to be married ultimately and have children. And so originally the psalmist writes this 45th psalm to commemorate the union between a Jewish king and his newlywed bride. And then all of the other Jewish people, uh, they would have viewed themselves for whatever, for the time of their betrothal, the time of their engagement, for the time of their marriage union, they would have viewed themselves as the king and queen. And they would have appropriated the words of Psalm 45 for their uh, very blessed occasion. We're not told much historical knowledge about exactly which king this psalm was written about. 
Um, it is leaving the sort of an open-ended ambiguity there. You can imagine that it may have been one of David's marriages. It could have been one of Solomon's marriages, or it could have been one of David's and Solomon's descendants that would have used the 45th Psalm as sort of their wedding song. But I want to make you aware of something. I've alluded to it and even spoke about it up until this point. The great C.S. Lewis described what he called the second meaning of the Psalms. The second meaning of the Psalms. So this is how it works. The first meaning of the Psalms in its historical context is that this Psalm 45 is written about a Jewish king and his bride-to-be. But then telegraphing all the way now, oh, I would say 700 years into the future, the writer of the book of Hebrews takes up the words of the 45th Psalm and applies them to Jesus Messiah. So the second interpretation of the Psalms is this, is that Psalm 45 is a wedding song for Christ and his bride, the church. Dr. McGarry, if you're listening to this this morning, I'm sorry. <laughs> now then, this psalm is perhaps, in my opinion, one of the most messianic, Christ-centered, Christological psalms that we've looked at up until this point. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, But of the Son, S-O-N, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's almost a verbatim quotation from Psalm 45, and it's being applied to the church. Therefore, Psalm 45 is about Christ the groom and the church his bride and the love which Christ and church share with one another. Let us come to see the marriage ceremony between the Hebrew king and his bride, which testifies and illustrates the infinitely greater marriage and love relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, which he purchased with his own blood. I have three points this morning. Verses 2 through 9 is the glory of the king. Verses 10 through 12 is the joy of the bride. And verses 13 through 17 is the advent or the king's advent. The king's advent. The word advent means entry or coming. All right? So number one, you have the glory of the king, verses 2 through 9. Number two, you have the joy of the bride, verses 10 through 12. And verses 13 through 17 is the king's advent. We're going to talk about this this morning. I want you to notice verse 2 with me. He said, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. The king's attributes are described in these verses, really verses 2 through 4. It's normal for world leaders to have a certain charisma about them. In fact, 
really, if you look at politicians, most of them have nice pearly white smile. Most of them are wearing uh, $1,000, $1,500, $2,000 suits. Most of them have nice shoes on their feet. Most of them are well-spoken. And may I say that some of them, although not all, are handsome or attractive in some physical way. And it's part and parcel of an earthly or worldly politician to have a certain allure, a certain charisma. They're well-spoken. Perhaps a worldly politician, a world leader, has been gifted with the power of persuasion. They're able to speak well. They're able to persuade others to believe what they believe and persuade you to follow them in their agenda. But that's really not the same kind of beauty that this king has, although David is said to have been ruddy and somewhat handsome as a young man, and even as an older man, David would have been very handsome. So was Saul and some of the other leaders of the nation of Israel. But what makes this king so attractive is his attributes that we find in verse number four. Look at what the Bible said. He said, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. This is something far different than mere physical attractiveness. This is something far different than just having the powers of persuasion. This is not Zig Ziglar or what was the fellow? Tony Roberts. All right. These high powered motivational speakers. This is not Joel Osteen. It's not Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George W. H. W. Bush. There's something peculiarly attractive about this world leader, and it's that he's characterized by the attributes of truth and humility and righteousness. And I want to ask the question, have you ever really met a world leader in our time that you could say was characterized that his attributes or her attributes were summarized as truth and humility and righteousness? In fact, it seems that in our day, the exact opposite is the truth. The world leaders in our day, even the ones that you may be partial to, are characterized by untruths, pride and arrogance, and unrighteousness. They lie. They say things that they don't mean. They play to the crowd very often. But that's not what this king is described as. That's not his attributes. He doesn't play to the crowd. He doesn't tell people what they want to hear. He's described and defined by the attributes of truth and humility and righteousness. And I want to submit to you this point this morning that what other king have you ever known in the world that could have been described as being true and humble and righteous all at the same time? And that is what he is every moment of every day. His entire existence was be, could be described as truth and humility and righteousness. I've only known one king in human history that that could be said of, and his name is Jesus Christ the Lord. And this is one of the reasons why this psalm is so Christological. It's so messianic. It's so Christocentric and Christ-centered. 
is because the language is so lofty, it's so high, it's so wonderful, it's so exalted, that we are like the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 12 when he spoke to the scribes and Pharisees. They came to him seeking a sign. And they said, Master, tell us of the temple. And he said, Behold, one greater than Solomon is here. And when I read Psalm 45, most certainly there is one greater than Solomon to be seen in Psalm 45. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was speaking of his own self. Behold, one greater than Solomon is here in the 45th Psalm. He's characterized, he's described, his attributes are that of truth and humility, meekness and righteousness. He will rule the world with a scepter of righteousness and his name is Christ the Lord and he has betrothed himself a spotless, flawless, faultless virgin wife and she is you and I, she is the church. The king's attributes are described, but notice also in verse number two, his words, the king's words. Grace is poured upon your lips. Grace is poured upon your lips. During Christ's earthly ministry, he spoke with such authority, mercy, grace, humility, that when his enemies sent soldiers to arrest him, the soldiers returned and said, No man ever spoke as this man does. John chapter 7 and verse number 46. Peter, St. Peter said of the Lord Jesus Christ, He said, Master, where shall we go? He said, For you have the words of life. John 6, 68. While on earth the words of Jesus Christ had power to calm the storm, cast out demons when possessed, and restrained enemies and draw human beings who were enslaved by sin into a deep and personal love relationship with God. May I say this, that no more gracious words fell from any human lips than fell from the precious lips of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ the Lord. Grace is poured out upon your lips. Everything that he said was said in grace. Everything he said was mercy. Jesus Christ and the words that he spoke are characterized by grace and by mercy. But notice in verse number four, you have the king's attributes, you have the king's words, but you also have the king's military victories. He said, in your majesty, ride out victoriously. There's a hymn written called, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and righteousness and meekness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Christus victor. Christ the victor. Christ the victor. No one was able to procure greater victories on the battlefield, the cosmic battlefield, than Christ the Lord. Through his sinless life, and through his resurrection and his victorious life and death and all that he experienced through his ministry, Christ procured for his bride, the church, a eternal victory. A victory for the unsaved, a victory over death, over hell, over the lake of fire. For the saved, he procured a victory from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It was through the cross of Christ 
that Jesus liberated humanity from the bondage and the tyranny of sin and death. Truly Christ is the victor. Truly Christ is a great warrior. Truly Christ has procured for us his bride and eternal victory. He has conquered our enemies on the battlefield. Let's stop and think about it for just a moment. And let's consider the resurrection. Usually when you kill your enemy, that spells defeat. So if you're on the battlefield and you're at war and you are able to snuff out the light of your opponent, you kill your enemy, usually that would spell victory for you, right? And that's exactly what the forces of darkness, the powers of Satan and death and hell and the world, the flesh and the devil, that's what they thought they were going to do on crucifixion day. They thought they were going to defeat their enemy by murdering him and by crucifying him on a Roman cross. The problem was it was through his death that he conquered death. So what does it say about your enemy when you kill him? He rises again from the grave. Normally victories over your enemy are procured through killing them. But you can't kill this enemy. Why? Because he is God. He is eternal in his nature. He cannot be killed. He cannot be stopped. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is Christ the Lord. He is Christus Victor. Christ the Victor. He has procured great and wonderful victories for his bride, the church. Notice also in verse number 8, you have the king's wedding. He said, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and kesha. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. And look at what it says about the wedding of the king. I like the old hymn that's taken from this passage. My Lord has garments so wondrous fine, and myrrh their texture fills. Its fragrance reached to this heart of mine, with joy my being thrills. Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. Isn't that a wonderful song? Out of the ivory palaces, written about Psalm chapter 45 and verse number 8. And this is speaking of the king's wedding. What a great and glorious day this is. In the New Testament, we speak and the Bible speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. All oh, when we are united with our king, with our husband, with our groom forevermore, clothed in white linen and spotless garments, clothed in the righteousness of God in Christ forever and forevermore. And then the psalm takes a little bit of a nice twist and turn, doesn't it? Look at verse number 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Verses 10 through 12, now focus on the bride. On the bride. The way I have it expressed in my notes, I have three points under this one. Forget the past, honor your king, and look ahead. Forget the past. Look at verse 10. He said, Here, O daughter, and consider incline your forget your people and your father's house. Forget your people 
and your father's house. Do you remember during the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then again, he said, Luke 14 and verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is one of the qualifications and the qualities of being a member of the bride of Christ, the church of God. It is that we have forsaken all to follow him. There is no greater relationship. There is no one more precious. There is nothing that we put higher than the knowledge of our God and following our Savior. There is a certain sense in which we must forsake all and follow him. I like what the Bible said in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 about the marriage relationship. Moses said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The marriage relationship, to be a member of the bride of Christ, the church of God, to be clothed in the robes of righteousness and have your sins washed away, you must forsake all and follow him. Leave all your loyalties behind. I like what Pastor Chantry said. He said, quote, It is painful to leave behind mother and father, son and daughter. We are attached to the beauties and friendships of this world. Forget them all. The king will more than make up for all. Someday you will look back upon the parting with temporal things and think your hesitation silly and ill-founded. When you sit in the ivory palace arrayed in the gold of Ophir at the right hand of the eternal king, you will wonder what you saw in those former things. You will never regret it. Carry through with your discerning choice. The king must be your one and only love henceforth. I like in the Song of Solomon, it said, the bride of the the. Uh, the woman, the prospective wife, looks at the husband and she said, He's the chiefest among 10,000. He's the chiefest among 10,000. You know, on your wedding day, wouldn't it have been wonderful to know that your dear wife would have picked you? You line up 10,000 suitors in front of her, 10,000 different men arrayed and handsome with all their wealth and so forth. And out of all those 10,000 men, she chose you to be her one and to be her only forevermore till death do us part. That's the qualification to be a member of the bride of Christ. You have to view Jesus as the one who is altogether lovely, the chiefest among 10,000, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. You have to forsake father and mother, all relationships. He is number one. Would be to God that we would have Christians in America today that would forget their past like this bride does in the 45th Psalm. She said, I'm not clinging to my family. I'm not clinging to anyone else. I'm clinging to Christ. Verse 11. And the king will desire your beauty. When you love the king and you forsake all for the king, you forget your land, you forget your people. You leave father and mother, you leave lands and country and kindred. You leave the bright lights and limelights of this current evil world and you cling to Christ and cling to Christ alone. 
Bow to him in verse 11. Look at what he said. Since he is not your, since he is your Lord, bow to him. There's a certain humble reverence and submission, isn't there? There's a certain he wears the crown and not me. He's the Lord and not me. I'm going to follow him no matter what. I want to do what he wants me to do. I don't want to live my life for myself. I want to live my life for the Lord. I don't want to wear the crown. I want him to wear the crown. I want him to lead and guide and direct and protect me. And that's one of the qualifications to be a member of the bride of Christ. You have to bow to him as the Lord. You remember what Paul said? He said, one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father of things in heaven and things of earth and things under the earth. The name that is above every name, Paul says, there's a certain reverence and submission performed by the bride for her groom. This is a qualification to be a member of the church of God, to be a part of the bride of Christ. Honor your king. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 22-25, he said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husband, love your wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To quote Pastor Chantry again, he said, quote, If a marriage union is to endure, the husband must express his love to his wife by tenderly cherishing her as part of his own body, by considerateness, by sharing all the goodness of God in his life with her. She, in turn, must express love by holding her husband in high esteem and by submitting to him in all things. Thus, the church must bow down to Christ, both because he is her Lord and sovereign and because he is her Lord and husband. Since the bride loves her Lord, it is a pleasant thing to serve his interests. She desires to bring Christ honor, to fulfill his will, to worship his name, and in quote. Does that describe you this morning? Do you desire above all things to submit to Christ? To live your life for Jesus? A man and woman of the word? People of the book? Prayer and supplication? Crying out to God? Talking with God? I sense that people in churches in our day are far too enamored with everything else. Letter C, the psalmist sees at least three things in the future for the bride. The bride has a future, and that future she is to look ahead. Notice with me verse 11, and the king will desire your beauty. What more gracious words can fall on human ears than for Jesus Christ to say, I love you. To look at you and say, I love you. Somebody says, well, he loves me no matter how I behave, no matter how I live my life. Well, that's not true. We just saw just a moment ago that 
The way that you open the heart of Christ and the love of God pours into your life, the love of Christ is showered upon you as a believer, as a member of his bride. The way that you enter into that love of Christ is to live and love him in return. What's in the future for the bride? The bride's king will love her eternally. That's my reward, to be loved by Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I don't get to have some fancy, uh, you know, I don't get to have a lot of prestige. It's not about having the biggest church or the most followers. It's not about having books that have my name on them or letters behind my name and degrees that are merely pieces of paper. It's about Christ knowing him, loving him, being loved by him, making him known. Notice also in verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. The bride will receive honor because of her relationship to her king. Where is the honor that we're going to receive? Well, we have to look ahead for it. We have to look ahead for it. We're going to be despised and rejected this side of eternity, most of us. If you stand for the word of God and for the truth at all, if you're really going to live for your groom, if you're going to be a member of the bride of Christ, the church of God, white-robed saints singing the praise of God and forevermore, you will be despised and you will be rejected. Also notice verse number 15. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Joy and gladness. Joy and gladness. How long? Forever. We're to look ahead. My best life is not now. Sorry, Joel Osteen. <laughs> I'm waiting for my best life in eternity with the Lord. I'm to look forward to His love. I'm to look forward to receiving honor because of my relationship to him. And I'm to look forward to joy and gladness forevermore. And there's also present tense elements of these things. And finally, in verses 13 through 17, I want you to notice verse 15. With joy and gladness, they're led along the enter the palace of the king. Verse 16, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. What is the result of this great marriage between the king of kings and the church of God? It's that God and Christ will make sons and daughters that are going to rule the earth. Think about that. I think that's what the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews had in mind. Hebrews 2.10 For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse 13 And again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children God has given me. Isn't that wonderful? The result of the great marriage union between Christ and his bride is that they will produce many sons, many daughters of glory whose 
Destiny is to inherit the earth, to rule the world in righteousness and humility and truth just like our Father and Christ has. What are we to be doing? Verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Have you ever stopped to think about that God is fulfilling that verse right now? This moment? With the sermon that you just heard? With the words of scripture that you just read? God has perpetuated the name of Christ through all nations. The sun never sets on the kingdom of Christ right now. Did you know that? I mean, all over the world, there are people on almost every continent worshiping and praising and glorifying Christ the Lord. Are we involved in the kind of relationship the psalmist describes? Are we seeking to perpetuate the knowledge of God? When God describes the relationship that He desires to have with His people, the way He illustrates it is through the closest relationship that human beings could have. That's the relationship between a husband and wife. That kind of closeness and intimacy, that kind of camaraderie and communion and fellowship, friendship, is that the kind of relationship that you have with God? It's a very piercing question. Let's bow our heads and hearts for a brief moment of reflection and then we're going to have a communion service. Our Father, we pray. that the kind of relationship we would have with you can only be illustrated by the closeness that a husband and wife has with one another. Lord, in a marriage relationship, there's really no stone left unturned or there's not supposed to be. Husband and wife know each other better than probably anyone else does know more about their spouse and their mate, their life mate and soul mate. They know more about them sometimes than they even know about their own selves. And so, Father, I pray that that is the kind of deep, personal love relationship that the people of Baptist Christian Church and Royal Center would seek with you, Lord. That they would desire that they would view you, O oh God, as the chiefest among ten thousands, the fairest of ten thousand to my soul, the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. He who is, in fact, altogether lovely is Christ the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that the people would view you that way. That it just wouldn't be about showing up and checking off all the boxes that we performed our religious duties by being in church and by doing what we're supposed to be doing, quote-unquote, but that it would be real, that it would be passionate, 
that they would have a genuine hunger and thirst for you and for your righteousness, that you may fill them, Lord, with yourself. I pray that for my own self, all those things for my own self. And I thank you, God, for your love and for your mercy and for your grace. For it's in Christ's name, amen.